Daniel Mendelssohn is a frequent contributor to the New Yorker and the New York Review of Books. His books include the international bestseller The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Million, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, and many other honors, a memoir, The Elusive Embrace, a New York Times notable book, and a Los Angeles Times Best Book of the Year, a translation with commentary of the complete poems of C.P. Cavafy, and two collections of essays, How Beautiful It Is and How Easily It Can Be Broken, and Waiting for the Barbarians, who teaches literature at Bard College. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I had the opportunity to interview uh, one of your New Yorker colleagues yesterday, Adam Gopnik, mm -hmm. and we talked about the fact that one of the best things that you can, or one of the best gifts that you can give your children is a sense of trust in the universe. And uh, the Greeks think that the universe is against us, it's dark, mm -hmm. and that disasters will happen. Mm. But what's your take on that? Well, I tend to take the Greek view. I mean, I think it's nice to give children a sense that the universe is not a totally hostile place, but I don't think it's a good idea to give them a false sense of security in a cosmos that is essentially indifferent to our existence, which is very much the Greek view. You know, when I'm wearing my classic scholar hat, I'm a specialist in Greek tragedy, and, you know, Greek tragedy is basically an expression of a worldview, and the worldview is, is that random terrible things will happen, also, not random, terrible things will happen. You will do things that are bad, that you think you can get away with, but they will come back to haunt you. Uh, one of the things I like about Greek tragedy is it has the precision of an equation. Everything comes back. Everything equals out in the end. Mm. So I think, I mean, I think by temperament and by intellectual training, I'm more uh, attracted to the Greek view, which I find to be realistic. Um, sometimes good things happen if you're lucky, but you should expect bad things to happen too. I think, oh, it's funny, I was just talking about this the other day. The thing that always attracted me to Greek tragedy, even when I was a teenager, and this may have been, had something to do with my experience as a gay teenager, but the sense that Suffering is a natural part of the order of things, that it's not aberrant. Uh, I was having an interesting conversation with somebody, now I remember, about the difference between American culture and European culture. And, you know, when I was saying the, the sort of phony Hollywood view of the world in which everything comes out neatly and there's always a happy rainbow at the end is, is such anathema to the old world view of things, which I think has the virtue of being realistic. Yeah. Not pessimistic, but realistic. And I think if you factor, in fact, it was a conversation with a Greek journalist on now. it's now coming back to me, if you factor in an expectation that death is the end and that there will be pain along the way, you'll actually be happier mm -hmm. because those things will not strike you as aberrant and unjust when they do happen, which they will. And you don't have raised expectations either. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say realistic, yeah. but, but rather than pessimistic. Because yeah. tragedy as a genre also allows for the unexpected gift, the mm -hmm. 
surprise blessing, which yeah. is the flip side, you know. But I think it's a sane way to see the world. I like the, what Marcus Aurelius says. He says that uh, in the face of tragedy, you have control over your response to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. That's what tragedy is about. It's just about. It's in. It's like a laboratory, and these terrible things fall out of the sky, sometimes literally, and mm-hmm. and the drama shows us how people react, well or badly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because one of the courses I'm teaching this semester is, in fact, an introduction to Greek tragedy. It's always interesting to see how this the kids react to it. Well, I think, I mean, I have this conversation with my wife, who's French. She takes your view. I, I don't take the Hollywood view, but uh, I think the world is, uh, things will work out in the end. Often they and, do. And for the better. I think often they do. I think it's probably, probably is the, um, the North American view, partly because of the history of these Countries, mm-hmm. you know, these yeah. countries that, in a sense, were designed to be places where things could work out better than they did in the old world. Yeah. So it's entirely natural that that tends to be our North American view. Absolutely. What's the worst disaster you've ever faced? Well, I mean, I, you know, I've been lucky in my life. I don't think I've had real disasters along the lines that we're talking about. I mean, I've had pain and suffering the way that people do. Um, Growing up gay in the 1970s was no picnic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, one gets used to things. Uh, Obviously, my father died a few years ago. That was difficult, but everyone goes through... These things, you know, as somebody who wrote a book about the Holocaust, I, I, I always try to keep things in perspective, you know, when talking about yeah. life disasters. Yeah. I mean, we most people have nothing to complain about compared to what some people have gone through. My, my life disasters are the totally ordinary ones, I would say, you know, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. In your latest book, An Odyssey, you contrast your account of Homer with your father's more critical response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He thought that Odysseus was a bit of a jerk. Yeah, absolutely. In your classroom. Yeah. Despite you saying that uh, he was... Well, he wasn't loyal to his wife, but he longed to see her. Well, he was loyal after the morality of the time where a double standard for sexual behavior was totally normal. I mean, I think he was loyal to his wife in, in the way that one was. That he, he wanted that to didn't, go back to her. Yeah, that didn't mean he couldn't sleep with the occasional nymph, but, but uh, yeah. And, and as you point out, he, he gives up immortality for the, the, the opportunity yes, to see his I wife mean, again. That's pretty big. He's given the chance to become a god by this goddess who's in love with him, and he refuses. So, in, in essence, one could say that he chooses to die in order to be with Penelope. So that certainly counts for something in my book, you know. Um, but my dad did have a kind of implacable resentment of the character of Odysseus, which, as I write in the book, I thought was very touching because... His responses to the text, as 
one finds in a classroom. The responses to the text often tell you more about the reader than they do about the text. Yeah. But, but very he, touching because he, you know, my dad was a scientist, he was a mathematician. I think he had a quite strict and sometimes rigid view of the world and how it worked. Which um, is what you didn't like about mathematics. Which is what I didn't like about mathematics because I was already a, you know, budding writer and liar and storyteller mm -hmm. and narrator. And I thought I was rather touched by the way that my father's real opposition, I mean, it was not a put on, it wasn't meant to entertain anybody. He really couldn't understand why anyone would think that Odysseus was heroic. He didn't understand why he should get his own epic poem. And when he said at the beginning of class, you know, I, he's no hero, he lies, he cheats, he he makes stuff up, you know, he was being quite serious. And I must say that, uh, you know, my father was not an expert on literature. He was not a literature person in the way that you and I are. But he intuited something which is, in fact, a very ancient objection to the character of Odysseus. You know, ancient scholars were already wondering about his character and the, some of the ancient commentators are already worried about this supposed hero's propensity for deception, for cruelty, for... And it's reflected in the poem. I mean, Homer is no dope. You know, if you catalog every one of the strange new places and civilizations that Odysseus visits during his long journey home, every, every place that he leaves, he leaves the worse for his presence. There, broken hearts, broken people, wounds, disasters. He is, I think, I think, as I get older and keep rereading the poem, I think he's, he, in a way, he's a kind of a figure of anthropology. You know, he, the, the, whoever composed the Odyssey, which of course is a very vexed question, you know, understood that you can't transparently observe some new culture, that your presence there is already a problem. And mm -hmm. that's something you that... You yeah, yeah, the Odyssey, which is like, you know, Anthropology 101, but mm -hmm. the Odyssey understands that. Everywhere he goes, he, he hurts, you know, and leaves destruction in his wake. So this is a poem which is, you know, on the face of it, it's an adventure, it's funny, it's got humor, it's, it's the sort of proto-comedy because it has a happy ending and the family is reunited and there's a kind of a wedding at the end, but there's a lot of pain there. And that's the Greek view. We come back to that, right? That yeah, exactly. It understands that nothing comes for free. Yeah. And my, I always liked that and I wanted my dad to see that too, but I think he was just too resistant to the character of Odysseus to appreciate the poem. Well, it also shows the fluidity of human identity. Yeah. And what I liked was the fact that you saw that fluidity in your father when you went on the cruise. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the great the cruise that, sorry, that followed the... the yes, day. after the class was yeah. over, we went on this cruise that recreated, to some extent, the voyages of Odysseus. You know, it was a theme cruise. It was actually kind of great. I mean, it was quite serious. There's a reading list. It was not just all-you-can-eat shrimp, you know. Um, <laughs> it, was, and, it was something that the, that the literary tourist, that's a project yes. I work on, 
would really would get do. something from. Yes, absolutely. There's, yeah. there's no question. And one of the things the Odyssey recognizes is that as part of this major theme of identity in the poem, right? Because the poem ends with him having to prove his identity to his wife. They've been apart for 20 years. Physically, they're totally different. So it raises this question. How do you prove who you are? And as part of that, you know, the epic recognizes that travel is transformative, that, that it changes us. Look, this is why you send your kids to junior year abroad or whatever. We recognize that it's a cliche of, of bourgeois experience, that that's why you travel. You expand your horizons. But in doing that, you become different. Mm -hmm. Your exposure to other kinds of things transforms you. And, and I sort of tried to work this into the book by recording the extent to which my father himself, during this brief idyllic period we had on board this ship in the Mediterranean, you know, he showed a side of himself that was not necessarily the one I always... It's not necessarily knew. that he didn't have it, it's just you didn't it know sort it. It came to the surface. Yes. You know, my father had a kind of a hard childhood. He grew up poor during the Depression he was a teenager during World War II, so his sort of vision of life was tough. You know, he saw the world, to come back to this issue again, as a slightly hostile place. And it had been proven that And way. it had been proven to be that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, his mm -hmm. older brother was a, a bomber navigator in the Pacific War in the Pacific. I mean, you know, was a generation that saw tough things. And so he was very suspicious of luxury. You know, he didn't, we never really took vacations. He didn't think that stuff was for him, you know. Even after he became successful, he never liked to treat himself to anything. And yet aboard the cruise, you know, this sort of very charming side of him came out. Which, you know, as you say, I mean, there was always the potential for that, but we had never been on a cruise together. It wasn't the kind of thing we did as a family. Yeah. And suddenly this other part of my father, which I did not know, came out. He was charming. He was affable. Everyone loved him. They thought he was so entertaining. He was reminiscing about his, you know, childhood years, singing songs at the piano bar, you know. And so in my book my account of this sort of transformation, so to speak, in my father is self-consciously reflecting something that happens in the poem, which is that if you do travel around the world, you're different when you get home. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I sort of saw this happening to my dad during the cruise. And I'm happy I did because he fell ill not, not long after we got back. Literally uh, fell. Yeah, literally fell. And that was the beginning of a series of health disasters that ended with a major stroke and then his death. And so, you know, one of the other aspects of the Odyssey's investigation of identity is, on the one hand, we want to believe that identity is a fixed thing that is not superficial, that isn't changed by time or physical appearance. You know, whenever I teach the Odyssey, I show my students a picture of me when I was in college. And, you know, and I'll say, and I always say, that's why Odysseus has to prove who he is when he gets home. Because you know what? After a long time, you don't look anything the way you did. <laughs> right. you, know? you didn't so, shave your head back then. No, 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 no. Right. I had a lot of hair, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so on the one hand, you want to believe that there's some inner self that is constant. But... 
you know, the flip side of that is that, and Odysseus is described in the first line of the poem as being a person of many twists and turns, you know, which describes both his voyage and his personality. He's mm. a trickster. But the Odyssey also recognizes something which we know from real life, which is, in fact, we do, we're all tricksters to a certain extent because we're not the same with everybody. We, we just as a matter of daily life, yeah. change, right? You're not the same with your wife as you are with your colleagues. You're not the way with your children as you are with your wife. You know, so there are many of each of us. Mm. And the Odyssey plays with that idea. So one of the things I got out of this really amazing experience of having my father first as a student in my Odyssey course and then on the Odyssey cruise, you know, and which one doesn't often get in life is to see one's parents through the eyes of other people. You know, we're used to seeing our parents in a kind of monolithic way. They're always the most powerful figures in our lives, basically. And then to see my dad first as the students reacted to him. To him, he was just this sort of entertainingly gruff old guy. And then to see him through the eyes of the passengers who knew nothing of his past, as I do, who were not embroiled in the family relationships that I had with him. And they just saw this charming elderly gentleman who was full of stories about the 1940s in New York City and could sing Rogers and Hart songs. And I thought, you know, that's really what the Odyssey is about. Not that you're magically transformed, which also happens in the Odyssey, of course. You know, somebody waves a wand and you look better or you look worse, depending on what you need to look like. Or you but, turn but to that, stone. Yeah, or you turn to stone or something, like, or into a pig, you know. Mm -hmm. But that we do have many identities. It's actually very canny. We do have many, there are many selves to each of us. And, and we tell white lies. And we all tell, you know, how we present ourselves. It's even when they're not lies, they're just not everything. You know, mm -hmm. the version of yourself that you present at work is not all of you. It's part of you. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're lying. It just means you can't always be every part of you. And I, so that's why I think, you know, especially today, because identity is such a great concept in contemporary culture. And it's the basis, not just in an idle, uh, intellectual way, mm -hmm. but politically and socially. These are charged words. I think the Odyssey is so useful because it reminds us that identity is multiplex and relational and contingent, you know, and yet we always feel to ourselves that we are ourselves and yet we aren't the same self with everybody. Although and, we do, I think, have a, a kind of a core some core characteristics. Yes. If oh. it's being curious or yeah. curmudgeonly or whatever it is. Absolutely. No, but I mean, it's that, that I would say that a sort of a healthy and useful picture of identity is that some kind of equilibrium between this static core set of um, personality traits, let's say them, uh, and these more relational uh, changeable, not changeable, but more relational aspects that we show parts of ourselves to different people depending on who those people are. And so identity is both fixed and fluid. We know mm -hmm. this from real life, right? Also, look, the, a famous thing about the Odyssey, of course, is that it's, it's, it's about time in a very sophisticated 
way. This is about a person who comes home after 20 years. That's a transformative amount of time. So the other way our identity changes is not, as it were, horizontally, you know, in our relations to different people in our lives, but vertically through time. So the you who was you in 1980, although you feel the same to yourself throughout your life, is certainly not the same you who's speaking in 2018. And and a good thing, too. Thank God for that. Somebody who remained the same all the time. And the only, I think, Greek literature deals with this issue because, of course, the humans age and change because they age. They can learn things. The gods are always the same because they are, as Homer keeps saying, it's a standard epithet of the gods, immortal and ageless forever. Mm. They are always the same. And one senses that they're a little bit bored. Yeah, yeah, they get their their jollies out of screwing up humans' lives. Yes, because they have no other. They can't grow. They can't age. And so existence is problematic for them. And Homer deals with that in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. If you can die, things have a lot more meaning while you're still there to enjoy them. You know, if you can't die, everything becomes a little bit boring. <laughs> That's true. It's uh, living forever is a kind of a curse. It, it is. I uh, I had quite a change. I sought out my father at about age forty, mm-hmm. and we had quite a changed relationship. Mm-hmm. And you say, I guess, I don't know if it was as dramatic as my experience, but when you were in your late, late 20s, 20s yeah. yeah, was it was it dramatic or was it just sort of a slow... It was like a slow thought. I mean, it was never bad. I just, mm, I yeah. always, probably this was a projection, but, you know, because I was actually bad in math and science when I was a kid, I always thought of that, that my dad disapproved of me, and I think I... I'm not sure that was the case, but that's what I thought. And so it was a little cool. I was always a little bit fearful of his displeasure. Mm. Then when I was in my late 20s and starting graduate school, we started to get closer. In fact, you know, in later life, we were very close. But we were very different. There's no, there's no question. But I think, he, I think he admired the difficulty of what I was studying even though... Yeah. Rigor. Yeah, that was yeah. important to yeah. him. He always liked to think that if something was difficult, then it was worthier than if something was easy. You know, if it's hard, it's worth doing. That's what he liked to say. And so even though he wasn't himself a classicist or a literary scholar, he liked the idea of how difficult it was to get a PhD in classics. And I think that, <laughs> that was the sort of medium of our coming together in a funny way, you know, yeah. that he admired, that Respect. he thought was good. Yeah. 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 Some argue that new criticism, the objective text-only mm. analysis uh, of, uh, of literature, re- which removes author intent mm-hmm. and, and reader response, is responsible for declining enrollment in English literature courses. Do you agree with that? Good Lord. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how one would determine if that were a true claim. I would think that, well, I don't know. I mean, new criticism was still in the air when I was an undergraduate. I mean, new criticism is a mid-20th century trend. Mm. Um, I think 
certainly currently, we are much more fascinated with the biographical. Yes, that's, cons- that's the reason I asked. Criticism, the and we, and you know, also social and economic and class context for the production of literary works. That's what we want to now analyze: how is class being reflected in the work? How is the author's own uh, identity being reflected in the work? You know, I don't see. I have to say that I I never see these things as mutually exclusive. I think that the nice thing about different kinds of literary theory or critical approaches is you actually don't have to choose one. You know, you can think of them as colored lenses and each one allows you to see a different aspect of a work. What I'm talking about, though, is is specifically the kind of books that you've been writing Mm -hmm. and and Odyssey in particular. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's an autobiography biographical literary criticism really and I think it's relative maybe it's not new but it seems to me that uh, I've just been reading James Woods mm-hmm. latest and he's doing the same thing mm-hmm. even uh, a, a, another book I've, I've just interviewed uh, the author of why poetry Matthews mm-hmm. Bruder mm-hmm. he brings in his father into mm-hmm. a book that's ostensibly about poetry, poetry. specifically poetry yeah. You well, comment on that, because I think you're leading the way on this. Well, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, this is my third memoir that wraps itself around an ancient text, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't think it's something I did, you know, set out consciously to do, but because I also write, as it were, straight criticism, you know, as a as a critic. But even there, I think it's important to register one's response. I mean, I think all criticism is autobiographical, whether you admit it or not. How could it not be, right? It's a reflective of, you know, people always say to me at readings or whatever, they say, you know, do you feel, you know, when you write in your memoirs about intimate things, about family life and your sex life and your emotional life, do you feel exposed? I say, I don't feel any more exposed than when I write criticism in which I'm showing everyone the inside of my brain, you know, so why is it any more exposed, right? right. So I think... Well, no, you're but I see what you're talking details, about. Though. No, 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 right. And but I, I mean, I'm being I a little disingenuous. But I don't want it necessarily, especially in a short form, I don't really care about what the reviewer's uh, yeah. sex life is, is like. No, 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 of I, course. I want to know if it's a good book, why I should read it, the context. Right. And yet we're finding quite a bit of that. But, I mean, short. but, I mean, whether it's explicit, you know, or implicit, it's always personal, right? Because your taste is personal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, you can't, there's no such thing as a purely objective review, say. It can't... No. Because your formulation of what is good, what is bad, what is worthy, what is unworthy, what works, what doesn't work, is ultimately a product of your own tastes. That's why there are different critics and they disagree. Um, Yeah. And so, but obviously I understand what you're saying, that there is in recent years more of a, a license, let's say, to personalize. And that is interesting, but I think that's very reflective of the moment, and it comes back, in fact, to this question of identity. You know, there's a recognition that that personality is always operating and that we're always at the nexus of different considerations of education, class, background, blah, blah, blah. And then, so why not admit it, one can say? You know, why not just put it right there and, and, and knock the eight ball into the, the middle of the pool table and just say this is me, this is what I think. I reviewed 
actually for the New York Times a couple of years ago, a book about criticism by Tony Scott, the chief uh, film critic for the New York Times. And, you know, that was a book in which, which I thought, on the whole, successfully oscillated between personal reflections and more, as it were, formal or critical reflections. And for whatever reason, I think people welcome that. I, because I do both, I feel like, you know, I feel I can do this because I tend to, as I say, as a critic, I tend to not do that, not to put myself in the review, although obviously my personality comes out, how could it not? But yeah, I mean, I, everything is personal, ultimately. On the other hand, you know, it's funny, I was at a, a reading recently of memoirs and some better than others and you know, some by a lot of write, young writers who I think are more interested in exposing things about their sex lives and personal lives than their readers may actually want to hear, you know. And I think, well, I think to some extent, it's also an extent of where you are in your own life, you know, what you feel is worth exposing or matters. If, you know, when you're in your 50s, it's just you're sort of over it to a certain extent, maybe. It might be about selling more books. What? Well, this this kind of melange of uh, memoir and criticism, the the publisher might say, like literary criticism on its own, pure as pure as it can be, is not going to sell as well as uh, if you bring in some of your own life experience. I don't know. I don't. I mean, my sense is that's not how it works. I mean, okay. author, you know, you don't get instructions from publishers usually I mean also again it depends where you are in your career if you're an established writer a publisher isn't going to publish a book by you unless you're a known quantity and they're mm -hmm. going to do the thing that you do yeah and they're not going to say oh put more sex in it you know <laughs> Susan Sontag because we're not sell selling enough books I'm not sure that's the way it works but no I think these things come from the bottom up rather than the top down. I think there are trends in the culture that start working their way upwards into uh, filmmaking, writing. That's how it, in my experience, that's how it, it works. I think we're just in a moment where, well, I think, actually, it's interesting that you mention this. I think that it may be the case that this kind of melange, as you call it, where the personal, that critics are less... Um, discreet, so to speak, about the extent to which their personalities are part of their criticism, is partly a re reaction of the, the as it were, uh, critical establishment to the internet. You know, one thing that cha has changed just in my lifetime as a critic, since I started writing in, let's say, 1990, I started publishing, is the internet. So suddenly there's a gazillion critics. There's a million billion people saying what they think of movies and books. And so the, the formal critical establishment, I think, is reacted by expanding what they, what we do. And, you know, because one of the, I remember this when, you know, I don't know what it was, maybe 20, 25 years ago when there were Amazon reviews for the first time and then people had book blogs. And, and you know, one of the great questions were directed at people like me who made their livings as critics for established newspapers and magazines was what, you know, why, what makes you so special? Mm -hmm. Who, who made you into God that you should make pronouncements and I can't as an ordinary reader? And so I wonder, I'm not 
you know, I'm just well, thinking out loud as you're talking. I've read the lit. You've read the literature. Well, you've... right, but I think that's true. And yes, I always used to say, what enables me to do this is I spent seven years in the basement mm. of the Princeton University Library thinking about literature, and you haven't. That's one reason. But I, all kidding aside, I think that maybe the thing that we're talking about is un, maybe unconsciously a reflection on the part of the critical establishment to expand its own way of dealing with its activities in reaction to a totally new trends in the world of how we talk about books and literature. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Yeah, that you sort of have to establish some sort of identity in order to stand out from all the Yes, or it's not just oppositional. I think it's also imitative. Look, you have a, a million ordinary readers. I mean, I use that term in the formal sense, right? Not, not professionals mm. who are publishing their opinions about books and why they loved them or didn't. And they're very present in their criticism. And I think to some extent, you know, we, you know, on the professional side are thinking, well, why can't we be as present in our in terms of our likes and dislikes and what we bring to the table instead of pretending to be totally objective machines who are just using some kind of formula. So maybe there's sort of give and take back and forth. I don't know. I never thought of that before, but I think I think you're onto something. I mean, I think there's something going on there. You know, ideally, what I want in criticism is a well-defined criteria. I want to know what the critic thinks yeah. is good and not good, and then for them to apply it. Yes, and that's why you feel with a good critic, you know, I always like to say the least important and interesting part of criticism is being right, you know. Even though that's a penchant of yours, apparently. Well, I don't know, I mean, who Wanting knows to what... be right. I think it was the same as your father, I think you made that point. <laughs> well, maybe in this book, right, I mean, you know, but... I mean, all kidding aside, I think that who knows what people think in 300 years of some of the books that I've trashed or praised, and I may turn out to be wrong, but the, what you want to be is intelligent and interesting. It's yeah. like when you walk out of a movie with a friend and you start arguing about it. That's all you want. You want an interesting conversation. And I think a critic, a professional critic who gets to keep publishing in the same places. So you develop a sort of presence and people know your personality. They know what you're like going into it. It becomes kind of like a relationship, you know. Look at, you know, some legendary figure like Pauline Kael in The New Yorker in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I'm probably wrong 90% of the time and never agreed with her. But that wasn't the point. The point was to be stimulated in the presence of a very interesting mind, you know, being right, you know, was Bonnie and Clyde a great movie or not, is ultimately not the point. Yeah. Objectivity has little to do with the highly felt, deeply personal experience of literature. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, I think, what we've been saying, you know. Yeah. It's, what, what, it, I, what I can't even imagine what it means to be objective about literature. I mean, it's, you know, only... A robot could be objective about literature. Yeah. The interesting thing about literature or any kind of creative product is that two highly intelligent people could be violently in disagreement about it. Mm -hmm. So is one of them wrong and one of them right? No. That's, That's why it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you could be right about something, there would be no conversations. And that's what makes it fascinating. Yeah.
you find it in the classroom all the time. You have 16 smart kids and they argue about something in a text. You can, it's not that one. I mean, unless it's objectively wrong, quote unquote, in the sense that they're misreading the text or they're not understanding something. Yeah. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, the other thing is, is self-knowledge through literature. Maybe that's why people want to dish on how yeah. they've become knowledgeable about themselves. Yes, well, I think that's why, look, it, it's interesting. You know, we certainly feel, I think anyone would agree with Half a Brain, that one of the things that literature does for us is it helps us to understand our condition as human persons in the world, you know, by exposure to these intelligences in these works, trying to work through different aspects of human experience. And that's why people have a stake in books. That's why people write Amazon reviews, people who are not professionals, because this is an experience that's meaningful mm -hmm. to people. And that's why you read Amazon reviews, because... Books are for these people. They are for readers. They are not for critics. And yeah, so it matters what they say in a way that it, I would say it doesn't matter what people say when they write in their blogs about what they think open heart surgery should be like, because you know what? They don't know what the fuck they're talking about, and it doesn't matter. But when people respond about a book, as an author, you have to take it seriously, because those are the people you're writing for, whatever you may tell yourself. And so it's, it's quite interesting. And people are so, have such a great investment in the books that they read. Mm. And you don't have to be an expert. You just have to be in, an intelligent reader. And so, you know, I know people, for example, I have a brother who's a filmmaker, and he's never read a review of any of his work. He simply doesn't care. He has a vision. He makes his movies. I can't not, do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying there is. Yeah. I'm not saying there is. But I can't do. I can't pretend that I don't care because I am a critic. I mean, I, you know, mm. I care what people think about books because I'm a person who, in part, makes a living from thinking about books, mm. and I'm a writer. I can't pretend that I don't care what readers think. Because what if they don't like it? You're hurt. No, I'm not hurt, but I'm interested. It's, I always say that I make the same joke when this comes up in readings. I said, you know, your books are like your children. If you're walking down the street with your child and a total stranger comes up to you and say, oh, you know, your child is ugly and stupid. You don't suddenly look at your child and think, oh, my God, is she ugly and stupid? You think, what an asshole, this stranger. Right now. But I mean, because they come out of you, they're part of you, you know, that yeah. you have this relation. But if some smart person in a considered way, says, oh, you know, I think your, your child is misbehaving or something, then you'll take it seriously. All the writer wants is an intelligent response to their work. Yes, it doesn't, uh, and that's true. And I always tell the same story. When I, when I, a week before my first book came out in 1999, a great mentor of mine in the publishing world, Bob Gottlieb, who was the editor of The New Yorker and the publisher of Alfred A. Knopf, took me to lunch and he said, I'm going to give you the best advice about being published that anyone is ever going to give you. And I said, what? And he said, the only thing worse than a stupid bad review is a stupid good review. Hmm. And it's really true. If you're halfway decent, you don't just want slavering praise you i think as with one's children you know exactly how good or bad they are you know what you want is 
an interesting, intelligent conversation. You learn from critical reviews. You know, I've had responses to reviews that I've made friends with authors whom I have reviewed, not always with total approval. You know, what you want is to have an interesting conversation. I've been reviewed, and I think, you know, that's interesting. I need to think about that. And, and that's so you much want to more, learn something. Yeah, it's so much more constructive. And I think when you write reviews, you need to think about that, too. In fact, it's very funny. I once had a very highly publicized spat in the letters section of the New York Review of Books with Tom Stoppard, the playwright, mm -hmm. because of a review I wrote of his play about A.E. Hausman. What was it called? Remember? His play yeah. is called The Invention of Love. And it was about Hausman, who, as I'm sure you know, was also a classicist as well as being the author of A Shropshire Lab. And we got into several rounds in the back pages of the New York Review of Books because I didn't much like the play and he was very angry. And I, I ran into him not three weeks ago in the in this city. And he had read my book, An Odyssey, my new book. And he, I have to say, was a total mensch. After, this was like almost 20 years ago, this spat that we had. And he wrote me a wonderful handwritten note to say how much he had really liked an odyssey. And now he couldn't remember why we got all head up about this review of, of, his, of his play. And, you know, it reminded me that even when you're very severe with somebody's work, you want to write it in a way that creates an opening for the kind of exchange we're talking about, a constructive exchange, you know, that's important too. You don't want to feel like you're burning bridges. And I was so impressed with his, you know, making this gesture about my book. And we met in the city and we had a hilarious conversation. He said, I don't know why I was so riled up because, because he said, you know, a few years later, when your review of my play, you know, was included in one of your collections of your reviews, I reread it and I thought to myself, you know, he has a point about some of these things. <laughs> you know, it's like, that, that's a thought, wonderful ending. Oh no, and, it was so great. Yeah, right? but often, unfortunately, no, it doesn't. You get these feuds that there's no way they'll even talk to each other. No, ever. But I mean, it ultimately goes back to your point, you know about this thing I had said that, you know, all you want from a review as a creative person is an intelligent response, not necessarily a positive, you know, five stars, two thumbs up. That's, that's what your mother is for. That's not what critics are for. <laughs> you had another line similar to that. I'm just trying to remember what it was. Uh, hopefully it'll come to me. It's very funny. Uh, I think it was something about a caterer. If you want something, then get a caterer. I oh, I somewhere. think I know what you're talking about, yeah. Just getting back to memoir, mm -hmm. the explosion of this genre, this is you, mm -hmm. coincides with reaction to the collapse of ideology. Everyone's story becomes the ideology of his own life mm -hmm. and coincides with the destruction of world structure. Yes, I think I That's was pretty uh, bold. Well, I think I was, uh, this was maybe in an interview when we were sort of doing some free form theorizing about why in the late 80s, memoirs started exploding, exploding as the preeminent new genre, certainly in Anglophone mm. uh, literature, although it's now trickled down uh, certainly to French literature as well. And so I was just doing some thinking out loud, I thought it was interesting that the collapse 
of the Cold War ideologies. You know, it's like when there's a forest fire and the big trees are all burned up and it gives a chance for these little plants to start growing that ordinarily can't because of the forest canopy. And I was just thinking out loud that maybe the alleged end of ideology at the end of the Cold War had sort of created this space for, you know, as it were, a personal ideology that the big ones didn't matter. And so the little voices started cropping up. I don't know if that's true. It was just a little thinking out loud, but it is interesting at any rate, you know, to think about why memoir suddenly has emerged in the past now generation as such a strong form in Anglophone literature. I mean, you know, there was, I mean, it's hard to remember and also as a, as a valid literary form, you know, not just, not just a form of psychotherapy, but a real form. And it's, it's almost impossible to remember that a hundred years ago, if you told somebody that somebody had written a memoir, it was either an exiled royalty or a retired general or a prime minister. I mean, it wasn't a thing that ordinary people were writing about ordinary lives and no. getting published. You had to be someone to have your memoirs published. And the yeah. fact that this is now seen as an activity that has some kind of validity in the culture, I think, is itself interesting. With this kind of confession culture? Partly, I think partly it may well have started because of that. Uh, you know, anyone who remembers the 70s and 80s on television, it was the rise of those sort of confessional shows where people would tell their stories and weep and the audience loved it. Especially if you had some kind of lurid story, you know, Sally, Je I don't know what was going on here in Canada, but in the States we had, you know, Sally, Well, whatever's Jessie, going on in the States is going on in Canada. Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and people would come on and talk about their terrible children or parents and everybody would cry, Phil Donahue, and then Oprah turned it into a high, glossy art form, you know, emoting in public and communing over shared emotions. And so maybe that was the topsoil out of which the literary, you know, that was the cultural topsoil out of which the literary phenomenon could germinate. Um, because then, you know, everyone was talking about their feelings and their experiences in public, and why couldn't you write about it if you were a writer? You know, because I remember at the beginning of the memoir craze, let's call it, everybody said, well, you know, he's only 40, how could he be writing his memoirs? And, you know, that goes to this point I was making before, it used to be something you wrote at the end of your career some illustrious or famous career. Uh, so it is interesting. You make the point, too, that memoir no is no longer the stepchild of the novel. You think that it will replace the novel. I'm not sure exactly where you said that, but... Did I say that? I believe you said that. Well, I may have said that, I, you know, for the present, it seems to be taking over or at least giving the novel a run for its money as mm. the preeminent form of self-expression among literary, ambitious, young literary people. I mean, the novel is a novel. It's not going to go away, at least in the foreseeable future. Although, as a classicist, I can tell you that all genres come to an end, you know. <laughs> to us, it's incredible that the novel won't exist at some point, but the, to the Greeks, it was equally incredible that epic poetry would one day no longer exist, and here we are with no epic poetry. Um, okay. Although it's funny, I've just been talking to a couple of poets, like, well, I've interviewed a couple of poets lately, 
and they're both working on long poems. So great. Who knows? Everything comes around in the end. You uh, translated Kabafi, mm-hmm. and he was really interested in Gibbon. He's a very serious amateur historian. And you did his collected poems, did you? Yeah, I did a translation of all of his, actually all of his poems, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, 2009, with a very extensive commentary. The recuperation of what time takes away from us. That's the role of the poet. Oh, it's the role of all writers, I would say. You know, I mean, everything that everybody writes is just some kind of you know, fly in amber. I mean, that's what everyone's doing, whether you are aware of it or not. If you're, a, it doesn't matter if you're a memoirist or a novel. You're you're willy nilly preserving a piece of a culture that is not going to exist in some distant future. You may not do it consciously or with a self conscious aim of preservation, but I think that's what all literature is to some extent. Some more self-conscious than others, you know. But certainly in a poet like Kavafi, who is acutely aware of history and the ironies of history, and, you know, a a sort of typical Kavafi poem, to give you an example, is this sort of to take some famous event, like the Battle of Actium, where Antony and Cleopatra were defeated by Octavian, who later became the Emperor Augustus, and so this is one of the decisive moments in the history of European culture because if Antony and Cleopatra had won, the shape of the world would be very different. You know, we'd all be speaking Greek probably. Um, and he'll, he'll take some event like this, a momentous event in history, but tell it or show you how it affects some totally insignificant person who sort of bumbles into it, you know, because history is history because it happens in a certain way that historians are interested in. But to most of us, you know, we're not aware of being at a certain moment in history. You're just doing your shopping and going to the gym and you didn't realize until 50 years later that it was the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, or whatever. So he has a very funny poem called 31 BC in Alexandria. 31 BC was the date of the Battle of Actium. And what it's about is this little guy who's a perfume merchant, and he's come to Alexandria for his, you know, periodic uh, walk through the streets, hawking his wares. And all he wants to do is sell his perfumes. And he doesn't understand this, this great commotion. And everyone is running to the palace to get the news. And he doesn't know. And that's how we, most of us experience history, you know. So there's history with a capital H. But most people just live their lives, you know. There's a wonderful uh, book by the French novelist Pascal Quignard. He wrote Tous les Matins du Monde, which became a movie about this 17th century musician. But he has a fabulous book, the exact title of which I will not be able to remember. It's called Les Tablettes de Bruit de, and then it's the name of a Roman matron, the box tablets of whatever her name is. And it's set quite late in Roman history, I think in the 300s A.D., so we know it's the fall, you know, it's the sort of the, the gradual slide down the hill of Rome. But she doesn't know it. And it's a list. He sort of recreates, as it were, the shopping lists and the journals of this Roman matron. And what is she interested in? She's not interested 
in history or the fall of the Roman Empire. She's like, oh, what kind of olives should I get for my dinner party? And that guy I liked, you know, he's getting old. And, you know, the same kind of thing we'd be thinking about yes. today. So, so that's what I mean when I say, you know, sort of willy-nilly, mm-hmm. almost accidentally, we preserve our culture because we live it. That's what, you know, everything is. Jane Austen, Zadie Smith, you know, these are all eventually little time capsules, whether we think of them as such or not. Just uh, winding down, I'd just like to touch on myth again. Mm-hmm. Myth, um, well, first of all, why does tragedy give us pleasure? <laughs> That's actually the title of a wonderful book. Hmm by a British, I can't remember her name, Emily, I think her name is Nuttall. A fabulous title. Why does tragedy give us pleasure? Well, it's a question everyone worried about in the ancient world. Look, because we have it in our lives, and what tragedy as an art form does is it enlarges it, makes it more dramatic, and allows us to look at its machinations, sort of writ large. You know, we all have, look, The same things happen to all people. We're born, we grow up, we fall in love, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. We have parents, they die. We have children, we die. (laughs) We have families that are crazy. All tragedy sort of deals with that, but in a highly exaggerated way, Mm -hmm. because the exaggeration makes it, as it were, easier to see. You know, so mm-hmm. you could say, oh, well, what is, or things in human life, you know, so what is the Oristia about? You know, everybody has crazy families. You don't necessarily kill them, but, you know, sometimes you want to, you know, so that's why tragedy gives us pleasure, you know. Um, well, it's also it's not happening to us. And it's not happening too. So there's this famous element of schadenfreude, right, mm-hmm. and dramatic irony. You know more than they do. So there's that that element too, but also because it would not give us treasure if pleasure if it were not true at some level. We feel that these things, even though they're exaggerated and hysterical and larger than lives, and you would never want these people to be in your life, that somehow they're about things that are actually in the world. If myth were just fantasy, it would not have the power that it has. Yeah. The reason myth is powerful is because it seems to describe things that are actually true in the world. Well, there's also the fact that myths may have been invented to scare the people into believing the laws. But I think, you know, I th- my own sense is that I'm not a you know, great authority on myth, but certainly I think... One way of understanding myth is that it evolves organically out of a culture. Myth, what is myth but the stories that a culture tells about itself? Yeah, and but they so, often include gods, right? And there's an well, it authority figure. What culture and... Yes, sure. Myth is a... I'm just saying there's not some guy who's writing it down because he wants... I think it evolves in a more accretive organic way but your myth is a way of expressing the values of a culture mm-hmm. what you look so many greek myths are about hubris and nemesis right you get too big for your britches and somebody knocks you down 
But that's something else we know to, we feel to be true in life, right? You can't get too big for your britches, you know. Um, and so that's what I mean when it seems to enforce ideas about how the world works. But certainly, yes, there's an absolute sense in which the gods are pulling the strings and you don't want to upset them. Yeah, it kind of keeps the wicked. It, it gives, if the, if the wicked don't have a conscience, then this is a... Yeah, there's a, certainly a moral and the, it, uh, it, it, component of many myths. You know, it's what keeps us in line. But what, what always interests me and what I, I invoke very often when I sort of write, as I often do, about how these kind of mythic paradigms continue to be felt even in contemporary culture. Mm -hmm. You know, so for example, I, for the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, I wrote this long essay for the New Yorker. Yes, about, you know, why of all things is this the thing that we can't ever seem to get over? You know, there aren't a mm -hmm. hundred movies about the Lusitania, which was another glamorous boat that sank. Why is it this thing? And my argument, you know, was that it seems to reincarnate basic mythic um, actions, let's call them, right? You know, it's about man trying to outdo the gods, right? You build a ship that's the biggest ship ever and you say it can't sink, so of course the gods are going to punish you and make it sink. You know, when we get attached to stories in contemporary culture, they're quite often, because they seem to embody a kind of very primal mythic element. You know, that's why the Titanic is a great story, because it is mythic. It is a famous myth, right? It's Prometheus. It's challenging the gods. And mm. when you challenge the gods, you're going to get zapped, right? Yeah. My boat is unsinkable. Oh, yeah? We'll show you. That's why we keep going back to it. And I think we feel that very strongly. I also wrote an essay for The New Yorker about the JFK assassination, which certainly in America is something we still haven't gotten over in a funny way. And I use the same idea, you know, that it, it is a, it's a kind of Iliadic myth, you know. He's the prince of the city. He's like Hector with his beautiful wife and his darling little children. And, you know, there's a, there's a mythic, almost religious energy at work. That's why we can't let go of it, because it seems to tell a story that we need to keep hearing. Hector got dragged around behind a chariot, didn't he? Yes, but Hector also had a big funeral, right? So one of the things that the Iliad and the Hector story is about is about the shining prince who is laid low. But then the last thing that happens in the Iliad is a lengthy description of this incredible state funeral, which is how we deal with our grief. It's how, how cultures deal with grief. They create ceremonies. And one of the JFK, those three days of JFK, what they enact among the many things they enact is the cultural transformation of raw horror and grief into ritual. Right, the ceremony, the casket, the wife, the salute, the, the you know, it was mythic yeah. <laughs> in a very deep sense. Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's and you make the point, it's a need for glamour. Why do we need glamour? Well, because most look, that's what that's another function of the gods in mythology. You know, this is a point many people have made, cultural critics, and you know, that's why we have well, in contemporary European culture, that's why you have or retain monarchies, right? We want to believe that there are 
these figures who are essentially like us, but they get to have better accessories, you know. Um, and they, so they're both like us and higher than we are. And I think in a certain sense in Greek literature, that's what the gods are like. You need to be looking up at something. And of course, everyone always says this in America, you know, we created Hollywood because we didn't have royal families, but you need... But why do you need that? Well, because it, it, it's attractive. Beauty is an important component of life. And most of us just go to work in the morning and come home, and then you want a little bit of beauty and glamour. You want a good soap opera, you want to watch Dynasty, you want to watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. You know, you want to brush up against... Because... Because otherwise life would be awfully glum. Hmm. And also because, look, I'm not a philosopher, but, but a response to beauty and the, the sublime, let's call it, is an important component of the human mind. We're not just animals, right? We don't just eat and procreate and die. There's got to be more. And in a crude way, that more can be expressed in the glamour of the gods or the royals or the movie stars, you know, these elevated beings who, through an you know, equally and more unattractive aspect of human nature, we simultaneously like to tear down, even as we like to build them up. <laughs> well, bitch about how much money they cost yeah. us. Or gossip about them and revel in their heartbreaks and disappointments and overdoses and divorces and whatever. You said that you're no philosopher, but uh, let me quote Aristotle here. Mm, he was a philosopher. Even the lover of myth is a philosopher, for myth is composed of wonder. Yeah. Well, wonder is, that's, a, that's, that's the thing I was trying to describe before. It's when. Well, when we were talking about glamour, maybe that's a different aspect of the same phenomenon, that we need to have wonder. It's that inevitable something better that makes us keep going. But I'll yield to Aristotle here. He's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> Just uh, finally, we were talking about uh, the Odyssey. How do you know who someone is? Mm. Uh, is there an inner core that never changes? Is mm. there a you that transcends time? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're obsessed with identity. Who are we? And so who are you then? Well, I'm, you know, by many things, depending on who you are, who you are, you know. I'm a critic, I'm a scholar, I'm a memoirist, I'm a writer, I'm a father, I'm a gay person, I'm Jewish, I'm American, I'm the grandchild of... But you're not revealing Eastern who you are. European by saying that, you're not revealing Sure I am. Those are all parts of who I am. I was hoping for more... Uh... <laughs> well, what could be more revelatory? <laughs> That's my whole point. I wanted to end this with a big revealing... But I'm a memoirist. All you need for the big reveal is 1995, you know, to buy you a book. I mean, it's all there, you know. I well, think that's, why we're do that's why you're doing this. No, right, so. but I mean, no, but all kidding aside, I think it's funny because when you are a memoirist, you're so used to being self-revealing that mm. it's... I wanted more than what you put in the book, I guess that's what I'm saying. Well, you know, I'm just a guy muddling through like everybody else. I'm... <clears throat> 
don't think there's anything more dramatic than that. You were saying that you think we live in a dark universe. I think because I uh, had the opportunity to meet you that we live in a good one. Well, that's very nice. I think one thing I'll say about your earlier question is I do feel like, in a way, it always feels to a writer idle talking about yourself because your best self is always in your books. And by best, I don't mean nicest or most admirable. I just mean that's where the real you is. So in a way, talking about it is redundant because you're never going to say it the way you want to say it unless you're writing it. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that interesting conversations aren't great. So buy the book if you want the great review. Yes, right, exactly. And the book is <laughs> An Odyssey. An Odyssey, A Father, A Son, and an Epic. Published by? Published in Canada by McClelland and Stewart. And in the United States by? by Alfred A. Knopf. And in French in Canada by Flammarion. Thanks again. Great, thank you. It was great.